Pillar 6 is all about environmental wellness, and today we're taking a deep dive into that. And we thought we'd start by reading the summary that we almost used as a conclusion at the end of our research because we feel it sets a good scene for how we've defined environmental wellness. Environmental wellness is about taking care of the world around us for the benefit of both nature and ourselves. It involves making choices and adopting habits that support a healthy environment, like using resources wisely, enjoying nature, and being mindful of how our actions impact the planet. By doing so, we not only contribute to a, be a better Earth, but also enhance our own well-being in the process. Succinct, to the point, but what does that really mean? And I know when we went through this, we, we listed off 10 categories that we could have spoken about here, but we've boiled it down to three. Three that we feel we can share that are relevant to, you know, the sort of environment today and somewhat relevant to our world of architecture, design and hospitality. So do you want to take a dive into number one? Yeah, the first one we're going to talk about is urban green spaces and well-being. And we're all aware how important the connection to nature is and how positively it affects our physical and mental wellness. And when we think about connection to nature, where it's really hard is when we're in more urban environments. That's where a connection to nature becomes a lot more difficult. There's some really good examples of urban green spaces in cities uh, that create areas for relaxation, exercise, and community building in these bustling environments. When I think about the cities, especially that we lived in, thinking about London, thinking about Hyde Park, it's got such a presence in the city it offers relaxation it's you can do fitness in it it's a community building there's concerts art galleries art shows people step away from the offices meet at lunch take the shoes off sit on the grass have a little picnic walk their dogs it's such a cool space to just come away from the built environment and meet in a green space so it really promotes so many things around well-being you obviously being from England, what's your experience with Hyde Park? How have you used it when you lived in the city? Yeah, Hyde Park for me, not somewhere I'd go that regularly. And in some ways, it's, it's like many things in our lives. You end up taking them for granted, but they are there. And I think that's where you benefit from them on a subconscious level more than a conscious level. Being able to get out the of the hustle and bustle of the kind of concrete jungle and find this piece of serenity and nature in the middle of a city is is fascinating and like you said is a diverse diverse area that you know spans a a big part of the city and a bit like central park in new york it's you know very mature heavily tree-lined has water features in it um has pop-up art shows concerts it's it's a variety it's a, it's a mixing pole of cultures and it's somewhere, like you said, you can just, you know, you can use it as part of your journey to and from a destination. So you can walk through it. It's somewhere you can go and, yeah, relax, um, go for lunch, whatever it may be. But that connection in, in, in to nature in cities is, is so important. When I think also back to the UK, there's a very famous 18th century landscape architect called Capability Brown. He designed, I think, over 170 parks and 
was really well known for designing very formal gardens for some of the large sort of stately homes in the UK. And he's that kind of godfather of, of design. And many of his designs are still intact today, which kind of shows testament to not only, I guess, his skill set and relevance back in the day, but how it's still relevant to today. Now, it's pretty rare that we're building large stately homes and having those big formal gardens, but they're still an important part of history and somewhere that people go and visit because they are protected, they're unique. And that leads me on to thinking about that formality to then bringing something into the urban environment. And I know we're going to speak about the High Line in New York in a minute. But when we were at the Global Wellness Summit a few weeks ago, we listened to a professor of our neurology and architecture talk about how our brains perceive and react to elements of nature, specifically in the built environment. And what was really fascinating about that was that they did brain scans and saw which areas of the brain um, sort of came alive when they were showing pictures of images of the built environment, but then also nature, biophilia inside a building versus nature outside of it. And what they came to the conclusion was that inside a building or inside the city we like to see biophilic elements it's very pleasing it has a a very positive response to us as humans but in in the built environment outside of the building itself the envelope of the building when we see nature we want it to be somewhat organized and that's what their conclusion was that random pieces of kind of natural nature in the city needs to have an organization to it and that's how we best respond to it so it's it's kind of interesting when you think about that and then now as we start to talk about the high line that is that organized nature within the city center which is kind of fascinating don't know that they thought about them when they created it but it plays very much into the new scientific evidence that they've discovered now the high line is one of our favorite examples of a green space in an urban environment. We love going there every time we go to New York. What's really interesting is that it's built out of an abandoned raised railway system from the 1930s that was abandoned in the 1980s. And the community kind of rallied together, an organization formed Friends of the High Line, and they really made sure to use this abandoned railway system and revive it as a stretch through the west side of Manhattan with green space. It's a space where community comes together, it's art is being displayed. It's got, I think, more than 150 species of plants and trees. It's such a beautiful example of bringing nature into an urban environment other than traditional, like we were explaining through Hyde Park, parks in the city. It's a stretch that reused an abandoned industrial piece of transportation and created this really nice space of community coming together with, with nature as the real main topic. Yes, for us, is whenever we pick a hotel to stay at in New York, we always pick something on the High Line because we love to be able to use it to, I guess, consciously and subconsciously pick up that piece of nature within the city. It raises you above, so you get a different vantage point of the city as well. You can 
interact with buildings in a different way you're no longer at street level so you're looking at buildings from an elevated platform so you get to enjoy the architecture close up you get different viewpoints you get different angles you get to look down on the hustle and bustle that's going on around at street level so it just it just opens up all of these different aspects of the city that you don't get to enjoy down on the on the floor and like you said it's it's you know lined with nature you can take a time to relax and pause you can sit there's benches along it you can really enjoy it and so important to reuse come up with these unique ways of taking old pieces of abandoned infrastructure and giving them a new lease of life that has so many benefits to the the people that get to use them within the city over a period of time sections of the highland have been opened and i think now they're about almost one and a half miles long really through the city and i think i was saying earlier about 150 species of trees and plants it's actually over 500 oh, okay so that's really that's really quite impressive in an urban environment it's really become such a global inspiration for other cities to take industrial zones and make something alive again out of there so that that repurposing aspect is another part uh, uh, other than just bringing nature is repurposing something really abandoned and giving it a second life that's what we really love about it too yeah and we see examples other like battersea power station in london or even yeah or new construction or trying to we mentioned we talk about green roofs as well there's green roofs on a kind of residential scale but then there's huge green roofs that are applied to near the high line the javits center that entire roof is lined with um, plants and you know just growing gardens where they can actually use the food as a resource to put back into event spaces down on the show floor below it's fascinating they keep bees up there it it you get pollination you attract birds and wildlife it's just fascinating how we can do this in the cities and i've watched tv shows about especially in london where people have beehives on their roofs and they actually create some amazing different flavors of honey because people are growing so many different um, species of flowers on their rooftops that aren't necessarily native to London. So you get this pollination from all these different species of flowers that the bees then use to make honey. So it's really, it's really fascinating when you start to bring that nature into city centers. Yeah, when we talk about environmental wellness and how it affects the environment being conscious about the environment but also how it affects us when we think about the mental wellness concept as well it's just really a nice idea how these places that we were describing especially like you were saying that someone can just do it on the rooftop to bring nature and that concept closer it's it's really nice how we can think about all of these new initiatives and think about innovative ways to bring nature into the urban environment. This is one of the reasons why we pick this topic, because we feel like there's so much creativity there. And there's so much that you as an individual person can do as well, without just being needing to be part of a big organization or company. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's where rooftops for me is so important. There's such a underutilized or wasted space on so many properties, whether it's adding green roofs, it's a place to add um, solar power, wind power, etc. They it really should be built into almost every project now as we start to do new construction. I know Björk Engels from Big Architects. He's put ski 
um, ski slopes on top of industrial buildings. It's just thinking about how can we use that space differently that allows people to interact with it, either from an activity point of view or from putting green and nature back into our cities. And then talking about all these places, we talked about London, we talked about New York, we know Singapore has a really great concept about walkability of the city and bringing nature. When we talk about that, it means getting to these places, it means travel. That segues us a little bit into the second topic that we wanted to address in context of environmental wellness, which is travel, which has a huge impact on the environment. We want to focus a little bit more on the eco-friendly, sustainable travel that's really starting to take shape and is really becoming more prominent because we're more aware of our impact when we travel. Reading a bit about sustainable travel, so sustainable travel, also known as eco-friendly or responsible travel, refers to a set of practices and principles aimed at minimizing the negative impact of tourism on the environment, local communities and cultures, while promoting positive contribution to these areas. The goal of sustainable travel is to ensure that the social, economic and environmental aspect to travel are balanced, leading to long-term benefits of both destinations and the travelers. Yes, it's funny when we think about anything sustainable, we we think about more about, or for me it's instinct to think about doing no harm or not disrupting too much, but there's so much more than that. It should be thinking about adding a positive intent to anything that we do around um, you know it's not net zero it's net positive it's like how can a building actually contribute to resources rather than just something that doesn't take away and that's difficult I think in travel because we think of airplanes cars how much fuel they use how really unsustainable they are but there are initiatives now we know you know with electric vehicles it's a big push i don't think i certainly don't really understand what that means for you know long term um how the batteries are produced how the batteries can be reused how the batteries are destroyed at the end of their life i don't really understand what that means and it, i guess also how is that electricity being produced that is also feeding those electrical charges so there's a lot unknown it seems very green on practice but i really don't have the background or knowledge to understand if it's really a long-term viable green future so we have to make sure that we're creating green electricity to feed these greener transportation methods i know virgin atlantic just i think it was just in the last week they just flew a their maiden flight with you know, a biofuel, which is, is really promising for the future. Again, don't fully know or understand how green that is, how much of a impact that's going to have on, you know, aeroplane or, or aviation going forward. But these things are really starting to come to the forefront and making a big impact on, yeah, how we initially get to the destination that we're, we're trying to, um, go and enjoy but then also benefit the local communities that they support that's very important cultural respect and support respecting the cultures of the places that we travel to and also supporting the communities and making them be part of that economic system when we travel yeah super important there's 
there's a lot of respect there that needs to take place. There's, I think there's learning that we can, we can get from those indigenous communities if that's in fact what they are in that destination and really learning from them. And we spoke last week that we often want to experience some of these practices or modalities that they have deeply enriched in their culture that go back, you know, hundreds of years. And there's nothing better as we've experienced through things like the Temescal ceremony, if really getting that delivered by an authentic uh, practitioner from from that con- culture who's still passing down that knowledge to the next generation, next generation. And sadly, in a lot of places around the world, that starts to get evaporated. So I think by traveling to those destinations, it's about respecting, but then highlighting discussing it when we come back you know putting it on the map letting everybody know how valuable it is i think super important and then in like you said integration of those cultures into when we're talking about hotels or a resort or retreat let's have that local community benefit financially often they do through tax revenues certainly in the united states but have those local people working in the properties, being part of it, delivering. We talk about being local or having a real authentic experience in a hotel. You can't get more authentic than people delivering that service to you, being you know being part of that. And we touched on it last week with the the social aspect is under you know having an open mind understanding listening to what people say trying to understand their cultures their viewpoints it's it's really all part of that and then not taking advantage of it and not this is the tricky one i think then displacing people often we find that when an industry or an area of the world gets very popular it becomes a very much a money-making machine for larger corporations. And that often results in displacing the local community, which it's very hard to balance. And it, it it's tricky. And I don't know the solution other than just trying to accommodate them as part of an overall development, whether it's key worker housing. If they're going to be the ones to deliver that experience for the guests because they're local, then they've got to be able to be able to afford to live in you know the world that they grew up in on that same wane where you're talking about possibly displacing peoples and cultures as well it also makes me think about wildlife because when we travel often to certain destinations it's because we want to see wildlife we want to experience that that's one of the really big attractions it's that consciousness around as well how much do we impact the environment really looking into practices that make sure that the wildlife is protected by us being to enjoy it at the same time. I think that's a really important thing. It's really important for me to kind of know that I, I want to see wildlife, but that I know that it is in the best possible way to achieve that and experience that. There's, yeah, and there's two aspects. There's literally, you know, being in the wilderness and getting to experience wildlife in its purely untouched natural surroundings and just being respectful of of the wildlife obviously you got to think safety first at times and then there's more organized you know when i think of safaris in africa it's it's being more organized viewing of wildlife and i think in any situation it's about okay if we're 
if there's monetary value created by showing people or getting people to experience this wildlife, how is the some of that money being put back into sustainably protecting and you know sometimes there needs to be uh, yeah a monetary add back into repopulating some of those um, species that might be going extinct or or you know in danger of going extinct so it's it's a give and take but it, it has to be sustainable from both sides when we talk about and we were kind of on the topic of eco-friendly travel what we're quite passionate about and what is really a big growing industry is eco-friendly resorts on the same vein like you were expressing involving local communities i think these resorts make a really great effort of any sustainable practices energy conservation water conservation integrating local communities and really giving back one great example of a brand that always springs to my mind is six senses i feel like they've got a very good way of doing that and delivering eco travel and eco-friendly travel and sustainable travel and having that real consciousness behind that yeah and the, you know they're very i think they're very much one of the they were at the forefront this is something that's built into their culture from day one and they're uh, they've evolved it and expanded over time and then they're setting the example to a lot of other people in this in this industry now or other companies that are getting into this industry you know simple things like water conservation i think they're they've been one of the first to get rid of single-use plastic i think there's education around yeah the destinations that they're at they're very respectful of the communities that go into so it's very it, it kind of ties everything together because we can't help to un, um to notice that travel is very unsustainable in many ways and just boiling it down to the infrastructure of a hotel for example that they're typically very unsustainable buildings the amount of waters that's used the amount of energy that's used um so seeing people at the forefront and then that they're very specialist in their type of offering very much a boutique bespoke high-end wellness resort destination sometimes it's easier to control those elements or set that as part of your brand standards in a way i think it's much harder to let that filter into the big brands in the hotel world when we think of the hyatts the hiltons the marriott's because it takes an almighty shift to turn that boat around that is already set on one path but they have made commitments those bigger brands by 2030 and 2050 to become net zero they're definitely on the you know the get rid of single-use plastics i think accor is probably leading the charge as a sort of big brand hotelier and in that front and everybody else is standing up and listening which is great when you just mentioned accor one other thing springs to my mind that we've recently been hearing about is the revival of the orient express that we're all familiar with that leads me thinking to a, a different type of travel that we keep hearing about it's like the art of slow travel when we think about slow travel it's a different way of traveling than traveling by plane it's a different way of the goal of getting to the destination really fast is really about that the journey 
to the destination is part of the journey. Like we often refer to that in life as well. But it's taking that time. It's, for example, sitting on the train and it's the exposure to the environment, to nature, to the scenery that you're driving past on the train. It's the, the, the trip taking longer, which really gets you to the destination. And then at the destination, really deciding to stay longer in one spot. Often when we travel, we go to new places. We look at everything that we could possibly do in a short amount of time in these days because we want to make the most out of that trip. Sometimes it's where we've done it. We've been to so many things that we can't even remember what we've done because it's been too much at the same time, too many great things, and then you don't really remember them. So the the art of slow travel is really interesting by consciously saying we're staying longer in a destination we're doing just one destination at a time. We connect with the communities there. So there's a different experience within that journey. So I find slow travel really interesting. And when we think about the impact of travel in the context of environmental wellness, that's, I feel like that's really something that people are going to become more aware of and more conscious about. And what's your thought on traveling by train? I know we've done it before when we went to Germany. We traveled from Munich to my hometown near Frankfurt and we really enjoyed that train ride so I feel like I could really see us going somewhere on a more exotic destination as well just by train yeah I mean when we think about the Orient Express there's a lot of history there there's the romance of it obviously it's fairly high end there's a high barrier for entry so it's not it's not for everybody but I like the idea I like the idea of slow travel I like the idea of train travel. You a bit like walking on the High Line in New York. You get to see the environment as you traverse through it to your next destination. Whereas on an aeroplane, you're obviously thirty thousand feet up in the sky, and you you don't really have any connection from point A to point B, or very little. So, being on a train, you definitely get to see the landscape that you're going through and enjoying nature. So we're tying it back to nature. Yeah, can it be a greener way of travel? Yes, absolutely. So it's all about the infrastructure. And then there's a nod to the past. You know, that's how so much travel was done. The only way really to get around other than by boat previously. So it's nice to, you know, bring these things back to the forefront, have that nostalgia, that nod to history, and just, yeah, do something different. I know here in northern Arizona, there's quite a few different train rides you can take. You can take rides from Williams to the Grand Canyon. You can travel around um, Cottonwood. There's a four-hour train journey around that area. So it's just something that I don't think we often think about or just not drawn to because normally we're going to a place that doesn't have the ability to travel there by train easily or it's going to take too long. But... You know, I've just sort of highlighted that it's going to take too long because we're just normally rushing from point A to point B. Uh, how can we make the journey as much a part of the trip as the destination itself? Yeah, circular economy and daily life. So this is a really interesting one. And I think it's probably something we can all relate to, whether we consciously think about it or not. And it's a sustainable approach to the economy as opposed to linear. And what I might do here is just, you know, delineate between the two. So linear economy, it's a take-make-waste approach. It's very much about taking a certain resource, 
we're making something out of it and at the end of its lives we tend to discard it with a circular economy approach it's about minimizing waste and therefore natural resources and it's how do we take something like the first one we take a resource we make something out of it but then how do we give it a new lease of life when it's deemed seemingly at the end of its usable life what it was initially intended for which refer uh, refurbishing repairing recycling that's really the initiatives that we can do to extend the lifestyle of a of a product and it could be any product we tend to think of it in our world obviously design hotels is it's a very tricky one when we think about buildings and architecture we're adamant that the first sort of pillar of sustainability should be built to last there's so many historic buildings across Europe that have stood for hundreds of years because they were built to last. The techniques that were used made them stand the test of time, both from often an architectural style and then also the methodologies in which they're constructed. In today's world where we're trying to build as fast and often as cheap as possible, those buildings sometimes don't perform over the long term either their design isn't timeless and they're too trendy or the methodologies or materials that have been used to construct them don't stand the test of time one example i often think is in office buildings that i know in london in every single office building we designed we'd always put a raised access floor in because it made the space completely flexible for future use whether you were going to take a heavily densely Uh, office cubicle and make it open plan or vice versa switch it from open plan to densely office and that just stands the test of time as cultures and the way people want to work in the office environment by having that raised access floor where you can move electrical and data points around very easily it makes it truly flexible when you build uh, an office building without that and it's just a solid concrete floor it's very hard and costly to move electrical outlets around especially when if it's a post-tension concrete floor which has these threads of highly tensile wire wound into them that if you cut through one of those it can completely destroy the floor so before you do that you have to have a floor x-arrayed and then you're limited where you could put electrical outlets and boxes around these tension wires so it's just thinking through things like that and just just really having that mentality of built to last. Mentality of built to last is important. And you were touching on earlier, when we do hotel renovations, what we often do is we go in and we see, are there any elements, especially the big ticket items, often millwork, is there anything that we feel like still has value from the previous renovation that we could renovate, refurbish, do something to it to carry it on through the next renovation? We've done that recently in one of our projects. The really exciting thing about that is that you give something else a new sense of life. And then when you add something to that existing piece of millwork, let's say, is a what, what can we do, what finish can we use that really speaks to the history of the property, the brand that can carry through several renovations. It's not just the next renovation, you rip everything out and you just put new stuff in. We find that really interesting and that connection of like, what can you reuse? What else do you add to it? It comes really down to the quality of the pieces you put into, because if you from the start 
with start with something really cheap that really just functionally doesn't last and is broken. We can't have broken pieces in a hotel room, but if something just needs a, a fresh up, needs a new veneer on it or a new laminate and whatever case is needed, then you can just really give it that sec second that second life. It's it's much easier when we think of like deeply historic hotels where everything is very period appropriate, where the fixtures and furnishings are very much designed of the era. I think that's easy because the, apart from a freshen up, the style doesn't necessarily change or go out of fashion too much. When a hotel is a little bit more modern day or generic, that's where, and especially if it's been designed to a current trend, as we know, trends change or go out of fashion, that's where it becomes difficult. So an idea of designing with a bit more of a timeless mentality can help. Having furniture that can, like you said, easily be easily refinished, easily repurposed. If it's millwork, is it something where, yeah, you can, or casework, you can change the door fronts when you're uh, refurbishing a hotel. So you're only having to change one element rather than ripping the whole thing out. Making things easily to be recycled. Not everything is going to be able to be repurposed. Carpet's a big one of those. We know there's manufacturers that will happily take back carpet, recycle it, and put it into new product. It's just making sure that all the people in the process are aware of that and have the mindset to do it. And sometimes it's deemed it's too much hassle or it's too expensive or we don't have the time. But that's the only way that we're really going to, as an industry in the hospitality industry, going to make a difference is if everybody adopts the same mentality. And I guess as some rules and regulations around it that to a degree enforce it is going to be can be really important. We were touching on the sort of our professional side and projects and how environmental wellness speaks to that. When we think about our personal lives and think about environmental wellness, when we think about how our day-to-day -day impacts the, the environment and we think about conscious ways of mitigating that, we really talk about being getting quite a lot of fulfillment and mental wellness through it because it's something that we feel like we contribute to something really important. It, it's less stressing us out of being the ones that make an impact, a bad impact on the environment. So a couple of points we were looking at that is, and these are points that I feel like people are very aware of now and are really in really good shape to be implemented. It's anything from reducing single-use items water bottles, coffee cups, shopping bags. So some really great innovative ideas that are being put forward to that in a in an interesting design concept as well. When we're talking about choosing sustainable products, it's really focusing on more eco-friendly options that are out there. Practicing mindfulness consumption is an interesting one because I feel like that's, I find personally very hard it's really thinking about when do we need something, how quickly do we need it, when we think about the accessibility of Amazon, is really having that discipline and sometimes saying, no, I wait just a little longer on something, I don't need it the next day. The initiatives of Amazon Delivery Day obviously is really good where you just collect all of the different things you need and you just get it delivered once a week instead of every single day, every single item. But it is, it's a little bit, more difficult and be more disciplined about that as well. 
I think it's because it's not necessarily just down to us as an individual. It may be that we're influenced by external factors and sometimes demands, if we go back to work, demands that are put on us by our project or our clients that whilst we might want to do something that aligns with us or our brand, there is a pressure on us to deliver something that doesn't align with that because of a time frame or you know, a, a financial or budgetary approach. So it's, it's difficult. And so many of these things take a, a huge cultural shift. We can definitely do what we can do as individuals at sort of grassroots level, but then it needs to work its way back up the chain to where these things are being manufactured. As long as there's a demand for something, whether it's speed, cheap, quick, efficient, then those manufacturers are always going to cater to that because it's a business at the end of the day. So until society as a whole says, we don't want that anymore, or we're willing to wait, or we're going to slow down, then unfortunately, there's going to be somebody who's always willing to supply that. We were talking about upcycling, repairing, refurbishing items in a hotel room where we work on designs. When I think about our personal lives, what I find really interesting, and I'm always interested in how can recycling stuff make things cool and how can we add something creative to it. When I think about upcycling of, of certain elements, we often like to look for the Japanese technique kintsugi, which really appreciates a broken piece, for example, and mending it in that case with gold. So that concept of making sure that if you take something that's old, needs a little bit of TLC, needs a little bit of repair, but adding something valuable to it, which sometimes is the material you're adding to it in that Japanese art form, or it's our kind of creativity, and putting a different spin on that element and making it a new piece. I think that's that interests me personally a lot. When I think about upcycling in terms of fashion, there's just one one account on Instagram that I follow where it's a really creative lady that uses old tablecloths and she makes these one-off pieces of vests and jackets and shirts out of it. I think this is just such a great example of reusing something existing, putting your creativity and innovation on it and in creating something that has such a demand now where often we have that no notion of something is old and is waste is we want the shiny new things but how we can add creativity innovation to it and then make something that literally would be thrown away a new cool sort of piece having limited editions of that and just that the thought of i'm wearing a tablecloth and i'm really excited about it i think it's just a really cool concept <laughs> that's cool i look forward to seeing i don't i don't know if there's a men's version for <laughs> it yet but i'll find it for you yeah, that just sparked a whole bunch of different thoughts in my head. So the Kintsugi, the Japanese, what they do and that specific one, I think it was to be like using sort of a gold thread or a gold, um, I don't know what it was called, a gold uh, resin to highlight. If you're gluing a piece of pottery back together, you would, but you're making a feature of it. You're not trying to say nothing happened here. It's to say this thing was broken and we're going to highlight the bringing of it back together and make you're almost creating a new piece from it. It's not just trying to replicate or make it look like it was before it was broken. I often think that in architecture too, when we design or add to an existing building, especially if it's historic, 
we try and make the new edition look completely different of the time today. So there's a juxtaposition between something historic and then something sometimes ultra modern. And you can read the history of the building through that. You're not trying to mimic or copy the original style to make it look like it was this seamless coming together. Because often in architecture as well, an old historic building doesn't necessarily function as you'd want a new building to function. So you wouldn't necessarily design to an old standard anymore. So it helps with the form and function of the building. And like I said, and then then telling that story. And then on a personal level, yeah, there's there's parts of me that want the shiny and new. And then there's parts of me that understand that sometimes that shiny and new isn't really going to make much difference. And a couple of examples I think about is I play golf, so it's golf clubs. Marketing around golf and golf clubs is phenomenal. And it's always about you can hit the ball further if you buy this new golf club. I quickly come to the realization that it's really going to make very little difference to the majority of people. We're not fine-tuned athletes like the professionals are. So I, I, don't, I don't see or don't... I, for me, with golf clubs, is a very much a longer period of time where I think the technology shift from the clubs I have now to one in the future, I feel for me it's kind of five, six, seven years, not every year when the new model comes out. Same with cameras for me. We get, oh, it's the new megapixels. This one does this feature. This one's going to make such a difference to your photography when so much about photography is about who's holding the camera and it's not going to make that much of a difference. So I've never been somebody who's like, as soon as a new camera comes out, I need the new model, the new model, the new model. I tend to hold on to them for a number of years. In fact, and I've just recently bought a second-hand camera because I actually want some of the technology to be dulled down so they're not perfect pictures, that they have a little bit more of a nostalgic feel to them. So, yeah, it's, it's very much about the individual, all of this. Yeah, when we were talking about buying second-hand reused use items that makes me personally think about vintage fashion or generally second-hand fashion it's really interesting what a big market this is now and how consumers are so conscious about it, it i feel like there's one part to it is just really knowing how much the fashion industry same a little bit like the built environment is really impacting the environment is the carbon footprint It's the fast fashion, really, that is kind of the problem here. And I really like to follow the more sort of sustainable brands that are coming to the market that are truly sustainable, that have not just a marketing aspect to it, but a real background to it. Same with vintage fashion. It's it's the consciousness, but then it's also that you can, with secondhand pieces or vintage pieces, you often find way more creative solutions that when you buy the, the brand new kind of on-trend fashion item, For me, personally, it's more about style than fashion. So I really like the idea of finding things, combining things. It's it's kind of a bit of a sports to find something that is a little bit different um, and then putting it together in a way that is more of a personal style than just fashion. So I'm definitely sharing that sort of excitement about secondhand uh, items. For me, it's a bit more clothes than golf clubs and cameras. Yeah, but clothes with me too. We're both the same that very much learned to try and buy higher quality sustainable brands in the beginning because they typically last longer and they have a second third use to them we will either 
sometimes sell them at Sister's Closet here in Arizona so somebody else gets to benefit from them because it's a good quality piece that has value to somebody else beyond our time with it or we'll give it to Goodwill or we'll give it to charity so there's very much uh, you know a second third life of an item of clothing as opposed to some of that fast fashion that falls to pieces in six months and really doesn't have any value to anybody after we've used it so we've got very much better at seeing the bigger picture around fashion and clothes yeah any other points that we want to add on to the circuit economy in kind of like sort of daily life the the one last thing i had on my list was um segueing away completely from clothes and fashion is composting mm. which brings us back from yeah that kind of clothing aspect back to to nature in a way as well what i like about that is that a lot of people really go back to growing their own foods in their own gardens raised garden beds for us in arizona it's a little bit harder to do that but um, what we've recently really enjoyed doing is growing our own herbs we've got a big herb box when we talk about composting is really making sure that food waste doesn't go into the landfill that we reuse that to create compost to feed back to the herbs, legumes, fruits, and whatever we're growing. So that was one other thing on my kind of daily circular economy list that is really nice to incorporate. Yeah, growing your own food has so many benefits. It's the it's the food mind body connection. It's the satisfaction that you've created something from seed or from nothing and then you're now able to feed yourself and your family with it you know where it's coming from you've tended to it it doesn't ideally have any chemicals on it it's as fresh as it can be because it's literally five steps outside of your back door so i would love to see more of a push for people going back to growing their own food uh, in their garden it would really help with so many aspects health mental health mental wellness connection to nature reducing the need for so much to be grown at an industrial level that would also reduce um, the amount of land that's taken out or destroyed they would also reduce the carbon footprint created by you know shipping all of these foods around the world especially ones that are out of season we're you know we're spoiled in this in our world where we can get any type of food at any time of year because it's grown in a different part of the the world and then ship to us so it's really much about being seasonal with the foods that you can grow that are appropriate for the environment you live in and then as we know from watching the blue zones so much of the longevity of the people in those blue zones were from people that participated in growing their own food not only from a sort of health point of view from the food they were eating and the connection to it but by the activity of daily tending to their gardens that little bit of stretching bending up and down um, just subconsciously kept them supple built muscles from you know standing up getting up off the floor it was just a way that they built longevity and muscle into their lives without really thinking about it so there's a ton of benefits around growing food Okay, well, there was a lot there, and there's a lot more to it, too. So we really only scratched the surface. But they were three elements that jumped out to us. And like all of the subjects that we've discussed, there's so much 
connectivity so much of it's intertwined and it's about having a consciousness around it doing one's own research seeking out what resonates seeing where we think we can make a difference and really embracing it and continuing to learn i mean there's there's just a lot a lot to learn out there there is and going back to our beginning statement where we're really talking about environmental wellness how it ultimately affects us mentally a lot how it affects us physically emotionally and really seeing how it's beyond just we think that's something we should do and it's something that's expected and it's something that's needed and it really is needed to pay attention to environment but really seeing another benefit in it and it might just be another key driver than just something we have to do is really something that benefits us on so many different levels and when we're in harmony with the environment it's just a way nicer way to live be conscious about it and just really enjoy being part being part of the a healthy environment yeah we touched on this before when we spoke to uh your niece back in Germany in the summer, that was really a big thing for her generation that they don't feel like they've got a compelling future because they don't feel like there's going to be a healthy world for them to enjoy. I can understand that. Does I don't relate to it like they do, but it's really interesting. So paying attention to what they're saying and doing what we can to make sure that there is a compelling future for them and a healthy natural world for them to enjoy and the future generations is is really important okay well i think that's a wrap for this week um as always thank you and i'll see you next week i see you next week <laughs>